0: 1 Kings, chapter 8, first scene, chapter 8. The whole theme of 1 Kings is covenants and character, you know, the covenants that God made with Israel, with David, and of course, He's made promises to Solomon as well. The character of God, the character of Solomon, the character of God's people, we are examining that as we're going through this book. and. In chapter 8, we are at the point now where the temple is complete and the tools have been crafted for its use, but none of that really makes the temple a place of worship. Only God's approval and obviously God's presence would accomplish that. And so Solomon, based on God's promise that he will participate in the temple worship, Solomon decides to hold a massive celebration to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, expecting that God's presence will will descend. And when God's presence fills the temple, Solomon thanks God for his faithfulness to his promises. He asks God to continue keeping his promises, and then he makes a new request uh, to hear and be merciful toward every prayer that is made toward the courts of the Lord. So chapter 8, we begin in verse 1. It says, "...then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto King Solomon." In Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month of uh, Ethan Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So here we see that Solomon summons Israel's leaders to Jerusalem it mentions the heads of the elders, the heads of the tribes, and then the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel. The elders kind of governed at the village level. The heads, they were those who governed the entire tribe, so the 12 tribes. And then the the chief here, it actually means the word princes. These are the princes of the fathers of the children of Israel. So the fathers of the children… So they should have already planned to be here anyway, so it's not surprising that most… well, all of them here show up. Verse 3… And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those did the priests and Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered uh, for multitude." So I do think it's fascinating here that we get this little verse that mentions that they took up the ark. You you think to yourself, why is verse 3 here? We already knew they're there. But we need to know that they took up the ark correctly. In other words, they did it as the Bible commanded, which was not to put it on a cart, but to carry it with the rods that were placed in the the rings uh, of the ark of the covenant. So in other words, lesson learned from David's violation. Remember, David had the ark transported via cart, and it was spilling over, and Uzzah tried to stop it, and he ended up dying because he's not supposed to be touching it, because that's not how it's supposed to be transported. So Solomon has it transported the correct way. And then it mentions also they brought up the tent, the tabernacle that Moses had made. Solomon, I love this here, because when we first meet him, he's worshiping at the tabernacle in Gibeon. He's worshiping at the tabernacle in Gibeon, but there's no ark there. And it's on Gibeon's a high place. And remember, God spoke to him in a dream, and Solomon decided, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to do it God's way. And so, I love this because Solomon's saying, I'm not going to allow multiple worship sites in Israel anymore because that's… God said we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to worship where His name is at, in the tabernacle, or now it would be in the temple. So I love that Solomon says, we're going to do this God's way, and we're going to bring whatever remains from that plundered original tabernacle that Israel built in Sinai, we're going to bring it into the temple. And so Solomon and the summoning leaders, they go in front on this march to the temple, in front of the priests with the Ark of the Covenant, and then Solomon has this massive offering that he gives. And then verse 6, we see that the priests bring it into the Holy of Holies. And the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord unto his place, into the oracle of the house, the Holy of Holies, it tells us here, to the most holy place. And they put it even under the wings of the cherubim. Remember you had, we talked about this last week, where you had two massive cherubim with their wings like this, and the inside wing is touching the other angel's wing, and the outside wing is touching the wall. Between them on the floor, where the Ark of the Covenant would be placed. And so they place it there, verse seven, for the cherubims spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And so they drew out the staves, the rods that they carried it with, that the ends of the staves were seen out of the holy place in front of the oracle, and they were not seen without the second without there refers to outside the temple. They were seen outside the door of the holy place, but not in the courts. And they are there unto this day. Now, people read that and they go, well, that's a contradiction because the, by the time this guy's writing this, the temple is destroyed. That is true. But the author frequently quotes sections of his, his book here. He's quoting other writings. So he is quoting this from an older record of these events where at the time the person wrote those, uh, uh, those words, they were… it was there. So, he is obviously using other sources here to compile this book that he's writing to the exiles in Babylon. So, there's no contradiction there. Again, he's just using source material that existed before they, the temple was destroyed. Verse 9… It says there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Oreb, which is another name for Sinai, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So, if you're wondering, going, wait a second, I thought there's more stuff in the ark. You're right. There's normally more stuff. Hebrews 9.4 tells us that Aaron's staff that budded and a pot of manna were placed and kept inside the ark for many years. But clearly, something must have happened to those things over the years, and they're no longer there. My guess is when the Philistines plundered it, they probably took them out. I find it interesting, though, that the Ten Commandments are still in there. Still there, serving to remind Israel of all these years of the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. God's law never changed for them. God's standard of perfection has never changed. But remember, God's law was never intended to save Israel or us because the law cannot save us. Not because the law is bad, but because we can't keep it. The purpose of the law is to drive us to our need, to show us our need for a Savior, to drive us to the mercy seat, which is why it's fitting for those two tablets to be in the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant is a box covered by a lid that's called the name of the lid is the mercy seat. It could be emblematic of the throne of God. The throne of God is a mercy seat. And so by Israelis coming to God at the tabernacle and now the temple, they were declaring year by year, Lord, we need Your mercy. Yes, we want to keep our part of the agreement, but we fail, and we need Your mercy, and we are trusting in Your mercy to spare us and to rescue us. And thus, you know, maybe you've wondered, you know, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Well, they were saved the same way we are, by faith alone. No one has ever been saved by works. No one's ever been saved by keeping the law or doing good things because the Bible declares there is none righteous, no, not one. And that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life is always a gift given to us by our trust in the Lord. Well, when the ark is placed inside the Holy of Holies, something happens awesome and miraculous happens. Look at verse 10. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Now, this is not new language. If we've been studying our Bible up to this point, and you're familiar with other parts of the Old Testament where God's presence is involved… It is always described this way. In Exodus chapter 40, when Moses finished the construction of the tabernacle. It tells us in verses 33 through 35, and he, Moses, reared up the court uh, round about the tabernacle on the altar, and he set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. And then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, this is the way it happened when the tabernacle was finished. Ezekiel chapter 10 describes God's glory leaving the temple as a cloud. When God says, I'm done, I'm removing my presence because of Israel's repeated violations of my word, they've made my own temple a place of idolatry, we see God's presence. Ezekiel gets a vision of God's presence leaving the temple, and it's the same way as a cloud. So, God's very presence is here, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I do think it's important to explain what's going on here, because in verse 11, when it says that the cloud filled the house, after the priest came out of the holy place, out of the temple building, that the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, it says, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud… This verse is is usually the main proof text uh, for the phenomena known as slain in the Spirit, or if you're really much older, going down under the power of God's Spirit. Um, This teaching is the idea that God's presence overwhelms someone so much that they collapse to the ground in a semi-conscious bliss of experiencing the presence of God. There's major problems with that theology as a whole, but certainly the, the exegesis of this is is bad. The word stand here, it means to present yourself before someone, usually for service. When it says that the priest could not stand to minister, it doesn't mean that they were knocked out or knocked over. They weren't even inside the temple, according to verse 10. They'd already left. They weren't there in God's presence. God's presence wasn't anywhere near them, and I assure you, if God's presence was, they'd be worse off than knocked out. They'd be dead. The true slain in the Spirit… You want to find out about slain in the Spirit biblically, go to Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. So, this verse is saying they couldn't go back inside the temple to do their jobs as priests, just like Moses couldn't in Exodus chapter 40. They couldn't do that until God's presence retired to the Holy of Holies. So, what does it mean here that God's glory filled the house? Well, the word glory here, it means splendor, honor. It refers to a manifestation of power. Okay, so how do we define God's splendor and honor and, and a manifestation of His power filling the temple? Well, Moses described this glory as a consuming fire. In Exodus twenty-four seventeen. Moses said this, and the glory of the Lord, this is verse 16, abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And here's Moses' description. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. So this cloud is, is not just a like dark cloud. It's also not just like a, a white puffy cloud. You know, it's not like a little happy cloud floating around. I mean, this is a kind of an ominous Like almost, you ever seen like a, Ezekiel describes it this way, but you ever seen like a a fire when the coals are really hot, but it's not like the fire, there's no flames. That's kind of the idea. It was probably almost looking like a, like the inside of a furnace. So God's glory here, it's like a consuming fire. Paul described it in 1 Timothy 6.16 as unapproachable light. And then John later describes it like the light of the sun. In Revelation 21, verses 22 through 24, John says this. He says, And I saw no temple therein. This is in the New Jerusalem. This is a yet future thing. I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord did lighten or illuminate it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. So he describes it like the light of the sun or the moon or the stars. Because our mortal bodies cannot approach God's consuming light. When we get to Revelation 21 and 22, where John's describing we're going to be in our new bodies. This mortal will have put on what? immortality. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. So, that will be different. But I think it's Paul in First Corinthians 15 who says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's a reason. This body cannot be in, in God's full glory and survive. So, we cannot approach God's consuming light. And so because of that, for God's presence to be here in the midst of Israel, he appeared in a cloud shrouding some of his glory inside the cloud. So what we're seeing here, in other words, God's glory filling the temple, is this as a gracious, visible representation of his presence with all the splendor, honor, and power that's associated with God's person. And yet, while that's present, it's still shrouded so that men can see it from a distance and still live. So, it's not the full-blown glory of God. It's not that God is only in this place because God is not limited to one specific location. And certainly, Solomon will say later, not this little room I've built for you. But when you think about this idea that God graciously, visibly giving a representation of His presence with all the splendor, honor, and power associated with His person… Can you imagine how awesome this must have been for Solomon and all these other leaders to see, to experience the grace of God, the glory of God, condescending to be in your midst? It was probably pretty cool. And yet, this is what the incarnation was for Israelites living in Jesus' day. John talks about it in similar awe-filled words in 1 John chapter 1 when he says, that which we have seen with our eyes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard Declare we unto you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. Guys, we have never seen Jesus, but we have precious, life-giving words from those who have, and don't they bring us joy? I mean, there are times I read my Bible, and I was reading last couple of days I'm in Ezra right now and you get to the point where Ezra there's nothing about Ezra in like the first 6 chapters of Ezra but when he comes onto the scene and he starts describing his experience of God's call he was a priest and God's call in his life to go to Jerusalem and to basically help the uh, resetting of the temple. They had started, but they had stopped because of opposition. Letters had been written to governing authorities, and the governing authorities said, stop doing this. You've got a history of rebellion. And finally, the leaders there said, well, we need to do this because God's our God. We can't just not have this. We need to be obedient. And so they wrote back to the governing authorities and petitioned with really good knowledge saying, listen, go back and look at the records. We have permission from King Cyrus to do this. And when the records show that they did, the king graciously said, go for it. You guys need to do this. Sorry, we held this up. And Ezra is one of the guys he sent back to go do that. And and one of the things, you know, that Ezra keeps mentioning over and over and over again, he goes, and the good hand of my my God was upon me. And the good hand of my God was upon me. And I read that and I, I just... You know, it was hard to read it because I just thought to myself, Lord, I've had times when I've known your good hand was on my life. And the Bible just becomes so real and alive when you, you look at that and you think to yourself and you go, that's not just Ezra, that's me too. The good hand, there's been so many times where I just didn't deserve anything from God and I wasn't up to the task and didn't know what to do and, and yet the Lord's hand was upon me, his good hand. And, and he, he, you know, he helped me to get the job done. You know, help me to do what I couldn't do on my own. We read these words, and they're not just words in a page about some religious event that happened or some person in history, but we read through them, and and we see how God worked in other people's lives, and we see how the principles there also apply to us. Our real everyday life, because we serve a living God. But not only when we read these life-giving words do they bring us joy, they also stir up a yearning in our hearts for the day when we will see face to face. We will experience what John described in Revelation 22, 3-5 through when it mentions there at the end of the Scriptures and he says, and there shall be no more curse for the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and His servants shall serve Him and they shall shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no more night, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Yeah. That's why at the end of Revelation, just a few verses later, John says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what I'm looking forward to. I don't wake up and look forward to some dude winning a primary or whatever. It's like, I'm not saying I don't have opinions. I'm not saying that these things don't matter to me. I'm just saying, that's not going to change my day. I wake up going, Lord, if you tarry, then we'll be faithful, but it'd be sure nice if you come today. Wow. It's not hard to imagine how emotional Solomon must have been in this moment. Uh, But the writer records probably from someone else, of course, the words that Solomon spoke that give us a bit more clarity of what was going through Solomon's mind. Look at verses 12 and 13. Then spoke Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I've certainly built you a house to dwell in, a settled place for you to abide in forever. I don't know. I don't know where Solomon is. I mean, you just don't know. Like you read a couple of guys' stories and you're just like, Man, they're just tragic stories. But I will never believe anyone who tells me that Solomon was not genuine. I... I mean, you don't get much more of a genuine response than this. I mean, you, you have all these moments, you have the offerings, and then all of a sudden the cloud comes and fills the temple, and you're witnessing it, this smoky cloud type thing that's kind of like pulsing with like, almost like a fire inside, and the glory of God, the grace of God. And you see his reaction here in these words. The Lord said he would dwell in the thick darkness. I've spoken words like that before where I've said, Lord, you said you'd do this, and you did. I mean, this is a very human reaction here. The Lord said he would dwell in the thick darkness. The word thick darkness there just means a very thick cloud. And Solomon knows his Bible, man, because he's referencing Leviticus 16, verse 2 here, where in 16.2, the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron, your brother, that he come not at, at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. That was God's promise. And it's almost like Solomon's like, he did it. Like, he, he did it. He said he would. And now I'm watching it. Again, Solomon had either been taught the Scripture or he'd studied them enough to know this verse. And now he's in awe as he sees what he'd seen in the Scriptures happen. You know, he, he sees God do exactly what he said he would do just like he did in the days of Moses. Like, I, I don't know about you, but like, I read my Bible sometimes and I I think to myself, that's crazy. Like you read about something that happened. Like, could you imagine walking up to a body of water and all of a sudden, shoo? I mean, I no, I can't. (laughs) Like, you know, I mean, we have special effects and we make all these, you know, interesting videos or shows that depict it, but like, I can't. If I walk to a body of water, I'm either going swimming or I'm hanging out in a lawn chair. I'm not expecting it to just open up on me. And there are even some times that we can think, did that really happen? I mean, that's crazy. Did that really happen? Like you read in Matthew 27, I think, when it mentions that Jesus, he said, you know, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then it mentions that the veil is torn and all the dead saints come walking out of the tombs. You know, you're just walking down the road and you're like, dude, it's like, 1,700 years behind style. What's he wearing, you know? And and then, you know, the next guy comes walking out, and you're like, who are these people, you know? Who are you? I'm David. All right, crazy people. Like, I don't expect to see that. And so there are times that we think to ourselves, I can't even imagine something like that happening in my day. Well, don't think that Solomon was any different than you. I mean, Solomon had read these stories, and, and I, I kind of get the idea that he's kind of like, I'm seeing the same thing that my heroes of the faith saw. I remember as a young man, hear the stories. Your pastor might tell a story, or, you know, an older brother in Christ or an older sister in Christ might share a story about this awesome thing that God did, and it's like, man, why can't I see those things? And then you have those moments. I remember we went once, me and one of the elders at the other church, to go pray for a lady who had been diagnosed with uh, lung cancer. Two huge uh, masses on her lungs, going to require serious invasive surgery, probably keep her laid out for a good six months. And uh I wish I could say that we went up there with like filled with faith and the car just going, God's going to heal her, whatever. No, I went up there in obedience, went and we prayed for it, anointed her with oil, and then we left. I'd never expected to get a phone call an hour later from a woman who's supposed to be in surgery, not telling me they delayed the surgery, but telling me they're not doing surgery, and me going, why? Not expecting her to say, there's no cancer. And then for her to show me the x-rays, two days later, there's no cancer. That woman's still alive. I just saw her at a, a, another service at a different church. She's still alive. <laughs> I saw it happen. I, get, I know what they mean because they haven't seen it, but I get people come to me and they'll say, Ezra, well, why don't we see the things that used to happen in the book of Acts? Why don't we see them? And I just, I just say to him, I go, I am. I don't know what else to tell you. Maybe it's, I have a unique position that people tell me when these things happen, but I hear the stories all the time. I hear the stories all the time. I had a gentleman in my office this week, and he shared his testimony about the miracle God did in his life. God still does these things. He still does these things. So Solomon wasn't any different than us. He'd read the stories, but he, you know, I mean, David's your dad. I mean, you hear about the stories. Yeah, I killed the giant with a sling. Like, yeah, dad, I've heard that story a thousand times. You know, sure he didn't just trip. We're he, they're human, just like we are. But here he sees it, and you could see the awe. You could sense the awe in his words. God said he'd do it, and now he's done it. What is important, whether it's Solomon or you or me, is that despite our thoughts and our, you know, sometimes our lack of faith is that we still obey. Solomon chose to exercise faith, maybe maybe not even expecting it to be this glorious, but he believed God would at least keep His promise. Obedience is so crucial to seeing God's hand move in powerful ways, not because we've somehow earned God's blessing, but because obedient faith pleases the Lord. And God tends, at least in my experience and what I read in the Scriptures, is God tends to do far more than we could expect or ask just because He's good and gracious. Well, this was the day that David had longed to see, but he didn't get to see, not this side of heaven. Some have described David as a king who wished rather to be a priest, when we read the Psalm 84 that we read in our scripture reading, he, those are the words of David, and it, it says a Psalm of the Sons of Korah, but literally it means a Psalm performed by the Sons of Korah. David wrote that. And David said, "I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness." You almost wonder, you know, if he would look out, you know, from the palace, go, I'm king. I just wish I could be a priest. Well, that's the reality. He's not lost on Solomon. And in verse 13, he says, I did it, Dad. I mean, he's probably not thinking that, but he's thinking I did, I kept my charge that my dad gave me. I have surely built you a house to dwell in, a settled place for you to abide in forever. All of David's dreams were realized in this moment. Solomon had kept the charge given to him. I thought about listing out the charges in the New Testament that God gives to us, but there's too many of them. (laughs) Too many in the New Testament. God gives us so many charges. And my encouragement to you is if you're reading your Bible regularly, you'll find them. And when you do, the Bible says that there are crowns waiting for us if we're faithful with those charges. Don't ignore them, you know, but see them through to the end. Well, once Solomon takes in the wonder of God's presence, he turns around to address the people in verse 14. And the king turned his face about and he blessed all the congregation of Israel and all the congregation of Israel stood because they were probably on their face when the cloud came down. That he blessed them, it just simply means to pronounce a wish for God's favor on someone. He just turns to the people and he says, may God bless you guys today for being here and experiencing this. May you experience his favor in your life. Can I say to you, don't ever underestimate how much it means when you tell someone you're praying for God to bless them? I've been bolstered so many times when I've been struggling by just a simple text. Say, hey, I prayed for you today. Sometimes it'd be out of the blue and my wife will just mention, so say, hey, I prayed for you today. God's gonna work through you today. Man, I needed that. Because we forget so quickly, don't we? we? Forget we serve the living God. We forget how gracious God is to us. We forget about his power and his might. Forget about his favor. Solomon, of course, has more to say than just a wish for them to be blessed. He goes on to say in verse 15, he blesses the Lord. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth unto David my father, and as with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein, but I chose David to be over my people. Israel. He starts off explaining a little bit of the history here of why this day is so important. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Praise and commendation be to God, the Lord God of our nation. The one who spoke, he says, with his mouth unto David, my father, and now with his hand has fulfilled it. And yet, he says, this was not God's idea. He says in verse 16, he says that God said, Since the day that I brought forth my people of Israel out of Egypt, I didn't choose any city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, a permanent place of worship that my name might be therein. But I did choose David to be over my people Israel. A permanent structure for worship was not God's idea. He had given them the tabernacle, which moved all throughout Israel. But choosing David to lead the nation was God's idea. And in that capacity as king, David wanted to build a permanent structure for worship. Verse 17, And it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house unto my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house. In other words, God says, David, David, it's a great idea, your heart's in the right spot, but you can't do it. This fascinates me because it shows here again, this was not God's idea. It was David's idea. It was God's idea for David to be king, but it wasn't God's idea to build a temple. Why do I bring this up? There is a huge misunderstanding concerning the doctrine of predestination. I would encourage you to listen to the teaching in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, if you want to find out about what biblical predestination is. Predestination is not to heaven or hell, predestination is to being conformed to the image of Christ. But usually when people think of predestination, they think of the idea that every desire a person has or every decision a person will make is decided on beforehand by God. That is not a biblical idea. God has not predestined every desire a person has or every, and every decision a person will make. In fact, God hasn't even predestined every good desire or every good decision a person will make. That is an ideology known as fate, and the Bible does not teach fate. It's an Islamic idea, actually. We do not believe in fate. God, in His sovereign position as creator of the universe, has decided that the choices we make are real. That means that there are good things we can desire or decide to do, that have nothing to do with God's overarching plan for his creation. Me wanting to take my wife out on a date is not necessarily some divine inspiration from God. It might be sometimes, but that, that is not part of God's overarching plan of redemption. God has a clear we talked about this. You know, Satan has a plan, God has a plan, and we have plans. Now where anytime the three of those intersect, God says to us or to the enemy, no. <laughs> and God's plan goes on. But where those plans do not intersect, every little thing that we do every day is not predetermined by God. Should I put salt in the fries or not? What do you want me to do, Lord? Now, I'm not saying you can't do that, especially maybe if you have a sodium issue. But the point is, There are sometimes decisions that we can make where it's not right or wrong, God's will or not God's will. Sometimes it's just a matter of, God says, you can pick either one. That is the way the Bible explains things. It tells us clearly this was not God's idea. It was David's idea. And so there are desires we have that don't specifically originate from God's heart and God's mind, but rather They stem out from the fact that we are made in His image or because we're grateful for all He's done or simply because we love Him. It's this truth that makes our relationship with God real and meaningful rather than superficial or simply religious. It's why God can say, David, this desire is good, but I can't allow you to act on it. It's a good desire. There's nothing wrong with the desire, but I can't let you do it. Verse 19, Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son that shall come forth out of your loins, he shall build the house unto my name. And the Lord has performed his word which he spoke, and I am risen up in the room of David my father, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I have set there a place for the ark, wherein is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. We see here God performed his word, God kept his promise. There's the author again getting right back to his themes. God keeps his word, God keeps his promises. One of my kids today was telling me that they learned about the promises of God to Abraham in class today. We were talking about, you know, the importance of recognizing that God keeps His promises. Even when we don't, He keeps His promises. And I've set there a place, He says, for the ark wherein is the covenant of the Lord. I think this is crucial. Solomon reminds the leaders that God's presence in the temple is conditional upon Solomon and his descendants and the nation keeping their side of that covenant. Those two tablets represent God's terms with their forefathers, and those terms still exist for us, is what Solomon's saying. Those terms still exist for us. This glorious day is wonderful, but it doesn't change any of that. We need to honor our side of the covenant. Now, we know how that ended up, right? Solomon and the rest of Israel violated their side of the covenant, and God withdrew his presence from the temple shortly afterward, the building was leveled. After God's presence left, the building was leveled by the Babylonians. When we consider that the very first readers of this book, the exiles in Babylon who are reading this, the author's point driven home pretty clearly, isn't it? God didn't fail us. God didn't fail us. I think it's probably one of the most, one of the most common questions that I get when Someone comes to me for a meeting and they're heartbroken. Why did God let this happen? Why why am I in this situation? Why did God not keep His promise? One of the things that we have to wade through in those conversations is, what is God's promise? And what is your idea of His promises? Where do they not match up? And then... Can we look at this situation, and is there an area where you disobeyed the Lord? And I would say, nine out of 10 times, the individual coming to me with a broken heart, in much pain, saying God didn't keep his promise. They're not in the situation they're in because God didn't keep his promise. They're in the situation they're in because they disobeyed the Lord. Now I know that's a hard truth to hear when you're hurting, I know that's not the thing we want to think of when things are going wrong. But I will tell you, when, when things are off in my life, the first place I look is not, God, How? where did you fail? The first place I look is go, Lord, is there anything that I didn't realize I did? Because very frequently when I look at a situation, the Lord will very gently in that still small voice say, Will, I love you, I am faithful to my promises but you stepped outside of my will here and this is on you. And I want to work and restore you again, but you need to acknowledge that first. The writer here, it's almost like he's saying, even Solomon says that God kept his side of the bargain. Even Solomon said that God did everything that God said he would do. I mean, that's the whole testimony of verses 12 through 21. Lord, you did everything you said you did from the thing I I didn't expect you to do that seemed you're way beyond what I could have hoped you could have done and then the very thing you spoke to my dad and to me, you did it all in every way from hundreds of years earlier where you spoke you kept your word, you kept your promise there is a sense where the writer is saying to them, guys, God did not fail us but what about us did we do everything we said we would do and of course, the goal of the writers for the exiles to recognize, no, we did not. We did not keep our end of the covenant, which means the blame isn't on God. Now, here's the cool part. This is the really cool part of all that. If the blame isn't on God, then that means he can still be faithful. We, let me rephrase that. We can still count on him to be faithful to his promises. And part of his promise is this, that if we will turn back to him, he will receive us and be merciful to us and restore us. That is why this is so crucial. Because I can look at someone and we can have the hard conversation and say, is there an area though where you've disobeyed the Lord? And when the answer is yes, rather than hardening the heart and standing even more firm in your disobedience, we can come to God with a broken heart and say, Lord, this is on me. But I turn to you now looking for mercy and looking for restoration, looking for the miraculous. And I'm, I'm coming to you on the basis solely of grace and solely on the basis that you have promised that if I will return to you, if I'll repent, that you will hear and you will forgive and you will be merciful and you'll restore. That's the message the writer is giving to these exiles. guys. God didn't fail. We did. But that means we can change that. If we repent, He will still keep His promises to us and restore us. There is hope for us if we'll repent and return to His ways. Well, verse 21 seems like the best place for Solomon to end the ceremony. All right, everybody. Praise the Lord. Let's go home. But what's fascinating, and and this is why I didn't cover this this week, we're going to get into it next week. I find there are so many parallels in this passage and the Moses passage. Remember when Moses, the Lord says to me, he goes, it's after the golden calf incident, and the Lord says to Moses, he goes, take these people, get out of here. I'm going to send an angel to lead you to the promised land. I promised I'd take you there. I'm not going with you because if I go with you, you'll blow it again. I'll have to wipe you all out. And Moses is like that wasn't the deal. Like, I don't want to go if you're not going to go. We don't want to go if you don't want to go, if you're not going to go with us. And so he cries out to the Lord, and he begs him. He says, Lord, please, don't, don't do this. Like, you promised that. I, I know you by name, and, and, and I found grace in your sight. So, Lord, will you please do what you promised you would do? Would you go with us? What is it that makes us your people, other than that, you're, you're in our midst? So, Lord, please go with us. And the Lord says to Moses, you have found grace in my sight. And I do know you, Moses. We do have a good relationship. I will go with you. And then Moses does kind of what Solomon's going to do in a second. Moses goes, I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. Lord, show me your glory. I want to go deeper. I want more. And so Solomon, like Moses, he wants to go deeper with God in this moment. And so, he asked for even more from the Lord. And so, we're going to take the time next week to kind of break that down and go into it verse by verse as we look at the rest of the chapter, because there are some very powerful things for the nation of Israel here that that Solomon prays, and then God says, I'll do it. When we look at the temple, we see something that isn't God's idea, it was David's idea. But God decided in his sovereignty to say, I'll go with this. And then when Solomon prayed a prayer with very special things in it regarding the temple, God said, I'll do it, I'll do it. If people pray towards this place, I'll answer those prayers. And so the temple in and of itself really isn't anything special, but it becomes special because of God's grace and condescension to answer the heart of David and to answer the prayer of Solomon. And so when we consider... You know, the promises that God has given to us because of where we've cried out to Him. You know, John tells us, he goes, if we ask anything according to His will, we know that we have the request we've made of Him. And so, we can pray resting in the goodness of God, trusting that He will be faithful to answer our prayers as well. Amen? We may fail, but God does not which means that even when we fail, if we repent, we can look to Him and rest on His promises. Let's all stand. Lord, we are so grateful that You never fail. We are so grateful that, Lord, even when we are faithless, You remain, You abide faithful because it's who You are. You cannot deny Yourself. You are always good. And so, Lord, we look to You tonight and all Your promises. And we cling to those things because, Lord, you just keep your word. You're just good. And then maybe tonight, Lord, there might be some who, there needs to be repentance. Maybe they're even experiencing some really challenging things in their life because of their sin or because of areas of compromise or areas where they're just not doing something that you've commanded us to do. Lord, for those who might be praying right now and saying, Lord, I repent. I'm, I'm looking to you to restore in you know, my marriage or my family or you know, my life in, in a certain way. Lord, I pray that you would be merciful and here. That we thank you that if we confess our sins, you promise you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for that beautiful promise in Jesus' name. Amen.